Would you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8? <clears throat> and before we, we jump into this text, I, I just want to communicate something that you know and I trust you experience in this body of believers. If you are part of Emmaus Road Church, we love God's Word. We love it because it holds out God himself to us. And every t doctrine taught in Scripture is, therefore, glorious. And so every doctrine in Scripture is worthy of our unhurried attention so that we might digest what God says to us more adequately in order that we might enjoy him and love him and trust him more effectually. So I trust that you've benefited from lingering in Romans 8, uh, verse 30 in the past few weeks, looking at each piece of this golden chain of redemption, phrase by phrase, truth by truth, reality to reality. And if you're here for the first time, unfamiliar with that term, the golden chain, is what theologians refer to as God's saving acts of redemption, specifically what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 30. God predestines us. He predestines us to call us. He calls us in order to justify us. He justifies us in order to glorify us. And it is a marvelous golden chain of grace. And we love this doctrine of how God saved us in sovereign grace churches. It's, it's, it's not just wonderful in our minds, but it stirs our affections and it functions in our lives. It gets things done. And so I'm sure that as you've, you've met and you've discussed with members in your missional community, in huddles, that you've recognized humility in your life these past few weeks. <laughs> I know that it's been prayed that your confidence in God holding fast to you and keeping you to the end would be strengthened. And if those things are so, I pray that much, much more would be accomplished in, by God's word this morning as we move along now. In Romans 8, verses 31 and 32, yes, we are moving on. So I invite you then, uh, could, would you stand in honor of who is addressing us this morning? This is God's very voice, and we receive this word like no other. <clears throat> what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But God bless the preaching of his word. You may be seated. If you ever travel to the island of Oahu, Hawaii, I would highly recommend, whether you're into this thing or not, to find one of the many trails that are open to hike. There is not one that's not accompanied with just gorgeous scenery and lookouts. And if you need a suggestion, might I add mine now, it tends to be more on the difficult side, but go to Cocoa Head. Cocoa Head is a volcano, not active, and it's located on the southeast side of the island of Oahu. <clears throat> the hike itself in distance is on the shorter side, but, but no pun intended, it will be one of the most intense gluteus burns you will ever get. 
it, it really is like the ultimate stairmaster. Because <laughs> at the top is an old bunker. Uh, it was built during World War II. And so to get to the top, you must hike on a now around 800-step railroad track that once delivered supplies to the fortified position at the top. It's a straight shot. There's no danger of ever really getting lost. If you stay on the track, you will reach the top eventually. But I suggest this hike not just because of how your legs will feel like jello afterwards, but because at the top of Cocoa Head, what you see is incredible. You look to the south and you see the expanse of the warm and inviting Pacific Ocean. You look another way and you see another volcano, Diamond Head, and you see Hanauma Bay. <clears throat> All the hundreds of buildings and shops that make up Hawaii Kai and the city of Honolulu are just right there. You can see nearly everything in every direction and you're just left with, whoa, whoa. It has a gravity to it. Maybe you've had a Cocoa Head experience. Every step up is just another step further, seeing something that you didn't see before. And the effect of taking it all in, seeing portions of surrounding areas in perspective to one another, it's, it's what made it the hike worth it. Might we even say it changes you and you never forget. Well, we, we have been hiking upward together with Paul in Romans, and now we find ourselves at a peak. Really, the grand climax of the immense doctrinal portion of this epistle that makes up chapters 1 through 8. Paul is about to complete what he set out to do in holding out to us this great and glorious doctrine of salvation. He began it in Romans 1, verse 16, when he states, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He follows that in verse 17 by presenting the doctrine of justification by faith, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And from then on, Paul has been giving clear and compelling arguments, silencing the opposition, persuading the fragile, convincing the skeptical, taking us all higher up this mountain until now, where we finally arrive at its summit, look back and out, and whoa. The doctrine of salvation is glorious, is it not? And how God saves sinners completely, not just the efficacy of what he's done in the past in making us alive to him and right with him and adopted by him, but how he will absolutely, without a doubt, finish in the future what he's already begun. It's undeniably wonderful. And that's what verse 31 to the end of this chapter confirms for us. These truths ground us for the turbulent path ahead. Just like following the train track steps ensure I'll eventually make it to the top of Cocoa Head, the promises given to us in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, assure us that the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance being kept for us will be our reality one day. These are precious promises. We need these promises, because we live right now, and right now is not so easy. We falter as Christians. We, 
We have doubts even on our best days. We experience the most undesirable, horrific, violent trials in this life. With, which even in a person who's been born again with a heart of flesh, pliable, trusting, full of desire to know and honor God, there are thoughts that we have that reflect if God, who is the ultimate and decisive cause of our salvation, if he actually will complete it. Will the most powerful and most, the worst things in this life, will, will they derail the salvation that God has accomplished? Or said another way, will God continue to work all things for our good till the end? My aim this morning is to point you to one of the greatest promises in Scripture. And it communicates that, that no one and no thing, past, present, or future, can successfully undo the certain and lasting salvation God has worked for you. Let me say that again. No one and no thing, past, present, or future, can successfully undo the certain and lasting salvation God has worked for you. If you want to present and teach truth effectively, learn from Paul. This is his pattern. State the truth, consider the objections, answer them, and in so doing, you establish the truth even more. Those of you learning rhetoric right now, take note of that. We see this repetition throughout the letter. A doctrine is presented positively, then Paul raises objections to what he's just presented. What shall we say is a common phrase that we've seen used throughout our journey of Romans. And now we see here in Romans 8.31, following massive, robust truths of salvation, we see what shall we say to these things? These things. What is your answer to how God shows you before the foundation of the world? What do you say about God effectually calling you and causing you to be alive to him when you were dead in sin? Tell me, what is your response to God who has declared you righteous on the basis of nothing you have done but the merits of his perfect son? What shall we say to God finishing the work he started in our future arrival into glory? What say you? What is your response to these things. And for Paul, there's really only one conclusion. And the answer comes in the form of more questions. Each of these questions that end the chapter have a strong answer, a strong teaching of the truth intended to portray the hope embedded within. Paul wants his readers not to just to breeze over the gospel, not just to breeze over what God has done for them in Christ. He wants his readers to be sure not only that they are called and right with God, but that they will reach the end to enjoy Him in fullness forevermore. Paul knew firsthand of the opposition one might face in this life and the effect they have on one's soul. And so from here, he is firm and he is gracious. The truth of these verses keep our feet on the road of this dangerous journey we have ahead. And so we have all these questions that point to us the unshakable assurance for us. Let's look at the first. 
Who can be against us? The Bible never claims that the Christian life is an easy life. No, it's, it's winding, full of snares and unexpected hazards. It is this way because, as we know, there are opponents. Opposition to righteousness and honor and truth. Why do you have moments or seasons where your assurance in God's saving work is wavering? What might be an objection to a golden chain of salvation? Well, the Christian has enemies who are against them. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have a persistent and a terrible adversary in the devil. If you are a Christian, he hates you. And he will use all his power and all his force to attack you. He knows your human nature better than you do. He knows where you are most susceptible to temptation. He finds pleasure in your failings and your sin. There is a temptation to underestimate his power and go along in life thinking he's a harmless companion. But he is a formidable foe. He is against you. Yes, but he cannot undo the certain and lasting salvation God has worked for you. The world is also an enemy. 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that the place we've always resided has been subjected to futility, where decay and sickness and death roam abundantly. The world breeds defilement, corruption, and dangers to the Christian. The world calls after our minds. Colossians 2, 8, in Colossians 2.8, Paul warns us <clears throat> that to not be taken captive by certain truths of thought according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. In Ephesians 4, it talks about having a certain mind that is rooted in the truth so that we might not be tossed around by the waves of human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Sometimes it's not even something that sounds like truth that opposes you. It's just straight up in your face, I hate you, and you're wrong. The world is full of these. Luke 21, verses 16 and 17 say, you will, be, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. One commentator has said, how man has struggled against man. Man is the wolf of mankind. Not the elements in all their fury, nor the wild beasts of prey in all their cruelty have ever been such terrible enemies to man as man is to his own fellow. If you've stepped foot in the, in the cesspool that is the replies section of a social media post, you, you know Twitter's the battleground of our age. Thousands slain each day. There's nothing noble about it. It's just straight-up murder from hatred tweeted from passionate hearts. And I pray that's the extent of the pushback you might face in your life. Someone you'll never meet just calling you stupid through a screen. 
Because we could survey history and easily find the most horrific, gruesome, and senseless acts against Christians. We could travel to other parts of the world right now where prison is threatened because of where your allegiance lies, where death is enacted without any remorse over the God that you worship. I'm sure that Paul was thinking of this objection when he wrote this question of who can be against us, the objection of man doing harm and killing you, threatening your glorification. The world calls out after us in our desires as well. Do you feel the opposition to your salvation from the world you live in? There are countless warnings in Scripture that to gain the world is to forfeit your soul. That friendship with the world is enmity with God. The pull of the world is to be promised life apart from God. To exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship self and created things rather than the Creator. Romans 1.25 Do you feel the world is against you, Christian? The way of the world is to promote joy and happiness as loving self, loving money, being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The psalmist laments the, the men of the world whose portion is in this life. The world is a formidable foe. It is against you. Yes. But it cannot undo the certain and lasting salvation God has worked for you. The world does hold up the mirror, does it not? So you can look into the face of your worst enemy. The flesh is an adversary to you. Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. How many times have you thought, the strong pull of my flesh, my sin, it will undo this great salvation that God has done. Man can harm or kill us, the world can lure us, the devil can condemn and entice, but the inbred inbred corruption we all carry is the worst corruption. We know that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17.9. This probably resonates with everyone here. Augustine cried, Lord, deliver me from my worst enemy, that wicked man myself. It echoes Paul's cry of wretched man that I am, chief of sinners. Our greatest opponent is not outside our doors, but within. Charles Spurgeon is so helpful to communicate the reality of our flesh. He says, if a Christian could lay himself down and run away from himself and never see himself again, he would be delighted beyond measure. For truly in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing is the experience not of the apostle only, but every child of God. When you would do good, evil is present with you. You want to fly like the hawk, which hath a chain to her leg. You can but stretch your wings and flutter, for you cannot mount aloft. You long to feel your heart as hot as an oven, but there is a mountain of ice within you which chills your flaming desires. Your flesh is a formidable foe. It is against you, yes. But you cannot undo the certain and lasting salvation God has worked for you. Paul doesn't dismiss the fact that there are adversaries. Some of the most violent opposition as he will go on to address in verses 35 and 36. But no opponent, no one past, no one present or in the future can successfully 
undo what God has done. The devil, the world, our flesh, they can threaten. They are all much stronger than we are in of ourselves, but none is of any account when God is on your side. Verse 31 can also be read, since God is for us, who can be against us? This is Paul's great response to the fact that we have been rooted and grounded in the eternal purposes of God. God is for you if you are in Christ. I'm just hearing that we should tremble and marvel with wonder because he's for me. God is not for everyone. The most dreadful words that a human could ever hear are those which God spoke many times in the Old Testament. I am against you. Those are words of disapproval, of condemnation. They're words of judgment. They are what our sin deserves. The one and only God is for a specific people in a very specific way that is not like everyone else. It's only for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who love God and are called according to his purpose that God is committed to, interested in, concerned about in a very specific way. And we know this because of what verse 31 is connected to, which is that chain of grace that just came before. If God is for you, it's because he's predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. If he's for you, it's because he's called you from death to life. God proves he is for you because he's justified you, declaring you righteous now and forevermore. And God is for you because those he justified, he also glorified. Is that true for you? If so, God is for you. It was his idea. No one or no thing can undo his decision to be so. Daniel 4.35 says, He does, God does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants, inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? God is for you. That means He's concerned about you and acts for you, not in a begrudging way, but with His whole being. <laughs> Jeremiah 32, 41, I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. If God is for you, then no one can be against you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The late English theologian John Stott said, All the powers of hell may set themselves together against us, but they can never prevail since God is on our side. And, and listen, this is not an untouchable, undefeatable verse to put on the back of your football helmet. Paul is not suggesting that if God is for us, then nobody will ever stand to contest us. The devil can sow seeds of relational conflicts in your marriage. Man can steal your car or harm your child. Later in this chapter, Paul says that Christians are being killed all the time. Enemies are a reality. What Paul is saying is that 
all the human pop opposition in the world that rises against you cannot thwart God's final acts. Because all the opposition in the world cannot undo the glory that God has laid up for His people from the foundations of the earth. Listen carefully. Since God is for you, nothing and no one is against you so as to work ultimately for evil. You can be slandered and humiliated, as pleasant as that is or has been for you. But the promise of God's sure and lasting work is that whatever is meant for evil against you, He uses for good. Not like it's, it's pleasant in the moment or not like a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. God takes every setback and every pain and every discouragement and He strips them all of their destructive power. That means everything is on purpose. There are no accidents with a sovereign God at the helm. In fact, it is in the pain and in every discouragement that is done to us that God uses to work for our ultimate and lasting joy in Him. This is, this is why we recount, and this is what we recount as we share our stories together. We can look back and identify the lowest lows that contributed to be most formative in our lives. There was nothing fun or enjoyable about them, but God used them. He was at work in us, and we're all the better for it. And to say that that's a great comfort is really an understatement. I pray it is, because if we see our enemies or our circumstances as proof of God not being for us, or said another way, if we view God through the lens of our adversaries and suffering, we will question his motives. We will question his heart. Have you ever wrongfully perceived that someone's against you and so in your mind, that's just like the launching pad where you interpret everything that they do as opposing you? Everything they keep doing or they don't do contributes even more to this belief that they are against you? Is this not the same way we can relate to God? We would never say it, but our thoughts and our reactions to our strained situation communicates God, you're not for me. I don't think you will or can keep me. That's a cold and hard place to be. And it is a reality for Christians. To operate in the belief that God is not wholeheartedly for us. You know, he's mostly good. He's delivered me from the penalty of my sin. Yet, life keeps getting harder. My health is spiraling, not improving. My spouse just left me and they're not coming back. And we question his ability or distrust his goodness. I say this church gently because I battle this as you do. It's debilitating when you are in that deep pit, that upside down, confused. And if we question if God is for us, how can we possibly be sure that he will supply all our needs ensuring this great salvation? But God has proven his heart. God has proven his trustworthiness to us. And in verse 32, we find the footing that our fragile hearts need to stand upon. Second question that's raised. Will God 
give us all things. The way that the Apostle Paul phrases this question removes all doubts. He's connecting an all-encompassing promise of God's complete generosity and eternal commitment to our good and linking it to a foundation that is sure. It's what John Piper calls a certification or foundation or guarantee of the promise that is so strong and so solid and so secure that there is absolutely no possibility that the promise could ever be broken. I'm confident in saying this for me. That Romans 8.32 is the most precious promise in the Bible. It's one that I go to almost every day and I've gone in the hardest of times. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This verse has two parts. The promise and the foundation. The foundation is this, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Jesus was not some stand-in. He is the Father's only son, the pre-existent, non-created one, the radiance of his Father's glory. He's the beloved son with whom his Father is well-pleased, infinitely precious to his Father, delighting in his Father's will. And in the garden, he sweat drops of blood and said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And his father said no. He would not spare his son. Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God killed his son. <laughs> Just as Abraham took a knife over his son Isaac's body, God the Father raised up a knife over his son Jesus and he gave him up for us all. The substitute for sin was a son. Isaiah 53.5 But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. This is the undisputable foundation for the promise that follows. Our salvation is costly. And God spared no expense, not even His Son. What objection can I bring to the cross? Jesus bore my sin in His body on the tree. He took my guilt and my shame. He took what I deserved so that I might be forgiven. I might be justified. I might be adopted. I might be an heir to every promise of eternal security and joy. And nothing that has been laid on this foundation can be thrown off. It was last year about this time that when the leaves were just covering my yard, I need to go rake today, that my neighbor Ron came to me and, and he said to me, when you need my pickup to take all the leaves uh, to the drop-off, just let me know. It's yours whenever you need it. As far as the things that Ron could offer to me, there aren't too many things greater than his vehicle. <laughs> so, this past spring, when I needed a certain wrench to fix something, there was no doubt in my mind that Ron would let me borrow it. 
if Ron would let me borrow something as valuable as his shiny pickup, how much more would he let me use something as little as a wrench? This is the reasoning that Paul uses here in Romans 8.32. This a fortiori argument, meaning from greater to lesser, is one he likes to use. Paul is proving to us that since God did not spare his own son, delivering his son to torment and evil and a sin-bearing death, that's the great and hard thing, then surely, absolutely, how could he not do the lesser and easier thing, which is freely giving us all things that Christ has purchased for us? Daniel Fuller writes, Now that the far greater obstacles of our enmity with God and the pain he suffered in Christ's death for our sins have been surmounted, Whatever barrier may stand in the way of God's giving us all things will easily be overcome. That is the far-reaching promise of this verse. God will give us all things. God will totally, unquestionably, most certainly, without a doubt, graciously give us all things with Christ. Whoa! What does it mean, all things? Romans 8.1 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, God is entirely for you and never against you. Let me say that again. If you are in Christ, God is entirely for you and never against you. No sickness No speeding ticket, no wayward child is judgment from God. None of your furnace issues, your finance issues, your car breakdowns, or missed flights, pray that doesn't happen this week, are punishment from His hand. Your marital conflicts or your marital longings are not penalty for your sin. In Christ, God is only and always for you with no wrath whatsoever in his heart. This means, this means in God's sovereign grace, there will never be anything in your life that doesn't turn out to ultimately benefit you. Because everything we receive is in Christ. We are treated not as our sins deserve, but as Christ deserves. The Father only looks on us with favor. Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you, he will absolutely, without a doubt, give you everything you need to trust him today. The Father gave Christ for you so that you would have all you need to respond in a God-honoring way to your ever-changing circumstances. With Christ, you are a recipient of every precious promise God has made. They are all true for you, so you can bank on the God who makes them to you. Since God gave His Son for you, surely, only, goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of your Lord forever. Since He did not spare His own Son, He will certainly work all things together for your ultimate and eternal good. Nothing falls through the cracks. In every comfort and in every sorrow, God acts for you as an omnipotent father who loves his child completely. 
And when you need proof of this, of God being for you, look at the cross where he gave up his son for you. How much he must love you to suffer that great a loss. And how could he not give you everything you need if he hasn't withheld Jesus? This is the unwavering footing that you can come back to right now and again and again, come what may. Whatever might give way in your life, whatever disappointments you have faced, whatever fails, this never fails. The connection between this foundation and this promise will never, cannot fail. So Emmaus Road Church, what do you say to these things? The Apostle Paul calls for a verdict from us. Standing on this mountaintop, looking out, what do you say? Are you certain of your salvation? Do you know that nothing and no one will rob you of what God has done? Are you confident all things are yours in Christ? Can you call God Father? I close with Charles Spurgeon, and I pray this is a comfort for those of you who find yourself questioning or just unaware of God's unceasing goodness to you in Jesus. He was for us before the worlds were made. He was for us or else we would never have, he would never have given his son. He was for us even when he smote the only begotten and laid the full weight of his wrath upon him. He was for us, though he was against him. He was for us when we were ruined in the fall. He loved us notwithstanding all. He was for us when we were against him and with a high hand were bidding him defiance. He was for us or else he never would have brought us humbly to seek his face. He has been for us in many struggles. We have had to fight through multitudes or difficulties. We have had temptations from without and within. How could, he have held, how could we have held on until now if he had not been for, with us? If he is for us, let me say, with all the infinity of his heart and with all the omnipotence of his love, for us, with all his boundless wisdom, arrayed in all the attributes which with make him God, he is for us, eternally and immutably for us. For us, when yon blue sky shall be rolled up like a worn-out vesture, for us throughout eternity. Here, child of God, is matter enough for thought. Even though thou hadst ages to meditate upon it, God is for thee. And if God be for thee, who can be against thee? Let's pray. Hmm. Heavenly Father, Father who is for us, Father who is not against us, What else can we say to these things? How else can we respond to the sure 
and certain and lasting salvation you have accomplished for us in Jesus. What response can we give to you who has withheld no good thing? We know because you have not withheld the greatest thing. You gave up your Son in whom you infinitely love. Your precious Son. You gave Him up for us all. You gave Him up to be tortured and scorned and humiliated. You gave Him up to be beaten and threatened. You gave Him up to die, and not just to die, but to die a sinner's death. Upon Him, every ounce of your wrath was laid. Every ounce of the wrath that we deserved was laid on Jesus. What can we say to this? How can we respond? With faith. With confidence. With absolute surety. With hope. Father, I pray that would be so in your people right now. I pray that would be so as this promise takes root in our hearts. Come what may. Later on when that hard thing happens. Later on when that phone call comes. Father, root us. Ground us by your Spirit in the surety of the foundation of this promise. No one, no thing, past, present, future can undo this great and glorious chain of grace. And come what may, you will withhold no good thing. In fact, you graciously give us all that we need to trust you, to honor you, to obey you, and to hope in you until the day that you bring us home into your glory. Root us and ground us in what you have said, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.